thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. We've got Alan on the phone. Good evening, Alan. Good evening. You're through to Dr Chris. What's your question? Um, basically, it's about um, bacteria, viruses, infections, all these sorts of things go to different parts of the body. Um, you know, you can get chicken pox on the surface of the skin, you can get um, uh, an infection on the chest or the throat, and usually, whoever you're living with, if they've had it, you get it in exactly the same place on your body as they had it on theirs. I'm just wondering how the various bacteria and the various viruses know where to go to infect. Yeah, well, that's a really, really clever question. You may not even realise quite how clever that question is, but it's absolutely key to how these organisms cause disease. The answer is that these organisms have hot spots or sweet spots in certain tissues or types of cells in which they grow best. And the way in which those organisms single out those cells is that they use the viral or bacterial equivalent of Velcro, which is on the surface of the organism, to lock onto the cells of choice. And they recognise those cells of choice based on a certain spectrum of chemical markers that are present on the surfaces of cells. Different cells in different parts of the body look different, they have different functions, and because they're doing different jobs, they therefore have different surface characteristics. And these microbes can exploit those different surface characteristics and they bind onto them and then they invade specifically those cell types. Why is that important? Well, as you gave a good example yourself, chickenpox, for example, is a respiratory spread virus. It actually first gets into the respiratory system. It then spreads using your own immune system to go to the skin and it gets into skin cells and also nerve cells Skin is good because then it can make little blisters on the skin that are crammed full of virus. The virus pops out from those blisters, goes in the air and infects another person. Wouldn't be so useful, on the other hand, if the virus was growing in, say, muscle because that would be inside the body and it would be very difficult for it to spread. So having this so-called tropism makes it really easy for the viruses and, and other organisms to find their ideal home and then spread most efficiently. And they do it by chemical recognition. They have receptors on their surface that lock them onto the right cell types. Is, is it true that um, when you get um, a surface spot, like a chicken pox, that it's also occurring on skin inside the body? Well, of course, you only have outside external skin because uh, this is a layer that's derived from an embryological structure called the ectoderm. But it's also true that chicken pox does invade other tissues unseen inside the body because of course you can't see inside the body so if you could follow where the virus goes when you're infected first thing that happens we think is that it invades the tonsils and the throat 
and it can also get into the lungs. This is when you first catch it. It grows there. Then it invades the immune system and spreads via the immune system to the skin. And lymphocytes, these are white blood cells, which get infected, carry the virus. They lodge in the skin. And wherever you get an infected lymphocyte lodging in the skin, you get virus coming out of it, going into the skin, and then causing the blister. And then it gets really clever because the virus at the same time as making that blister also invades sensory nerves supplying the skin and it then goes inside the nerve all the way back up to near the spinal cord and just exists as a tiny circular piece of DNA which persists in that nerve cell. In fact, pretty much 5% of all of the sensory nerve cells in your entire body end up harbouring the virus after you've had chickenpox, and it stays there for the rest of your life. And that means that periodically, when for some reason your immune system gets weakened, the virus can come back to life, and it comes back out down the nerve, and it triggers shingles. And those shingles blisters are identical to chickenpox blisters, except they're in just one part of the body, but they're full of infectious virus. So the virus can come out from those blisters, get breathed in by another person who hasn't ever had chickenpox, and they get chickenpox. Right. Thank you very much. Well, all right. Thank you, Alan. Thank, thank you. you very much indeed. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, um, let's get to goosebumps. I'm a bit of a goosebumpy person. Ella says, what causes skin to make goosebumps bumps when you get cold? Hi Ella, good question. Goosebumps are the vestiges of our animal origins. Uh, these are caused by piloerector muscles. Pilo meaning hair, erector meaning stand up. In other words, wherever you get a goosebump, it's a tiny muscle within the skin which is trying to make one of your hairs stand on end. Why do animals do this? Well, animals have it because A, if you make your hair stand on end, the hair traps lots of air against your skin and if you trap air against your skin air is a poor conductor of heat so it's a very good way of preserving heat on a cold day that's why goosebumps tend to happen when it's cold the other time goosebumps happen is when you're scared and that's because they're supplied by a part of the nervous system the sympathetic nervous system which is geared up to respond to what's called the fight or flight reaction so when you get scared your sympathetic nervous system kicks in and it triggers this particular reaction. Why? Because if you're an animal and you have lots of hair and you make your hair stand on end, you look much bigger than when your hair's lying flat. And big animals are scarier, at least to other animals, than smaller ones. So it's a way of looking bigger and scarier. You scare off the opposition. Us humans don't have much hair to speak of, but we still have those vestiges of our animal origins. So it doesn't really help enormously in us. It's really a rudiment of our past. Hmm, OK, that's all right, because I'm not hairy. <laughs> Oh, dear. Um, let's see now. Uh, Dom says, um, you get the uh, collectible cards that have holograms on them. How are they made? Well, holograms are pretty clever. What you do to make a hologram is you take a laser beam. Laser is what's called very coherent light. So it's one discrete or a unique discrete set of wavelengths of light, so one colour. And all those light, light waves line up perfectly. They're all synchronised. And you send the laser beam into a splitter, and it divides the laser beam into two. One of the beams hits an object, a target, that you want to make the hologram of, whilst the second beam is carries on via a different course. The two light waves are then brought together again, the one that has gone through the target that you want to turn into a hologram, and the one that hasn't. Where they were previously perfectly in sync or in step these waves, because one of them has gone through a different 
route to get to the target than the other one, they're now slightly out of step and they do what's called interfere with each other. So, in other words, they add together a bit or cancel out a bit according to whether they're lined up or not. And this produces this interference pattern, the hologram. And it's then imprinted into some kind of material which uh, enables you to see that hologram. So you use the right kind of material that enables you to etch it in such a way that you can you can see that image impressed. And and that's basically how a hologram works. And to, normally to read them, you have uh, you need light of a certain wavelength to to recreate the image. But that's basically how a hologram works. Interesting stuff. You're a mind of information. We've got another caller for you. This time we've got Tony on the line. Hello, Tony. Hi everyone, how are you? Yeah, very good, thank you. And your question for Chris? Yeah, hi Chris. It's a it's a strange one really. I do quite a bit of fishing at night and I've found for many years that if I'm watching a float in the dark, if I look at it, I can't see it. But if I look next to it, I can see it in my peripheral vision and I always thought it was just my old tired eyes. But I was out with my um, 14-year-old daughter the other night and she said, Dad, it's really weird. If I look at it, I can't see it. But if I look next to it, I can see it clearly. Now, why would the centre of your vision not be as good as your peripheral vision? I don't understand that. Hi, Tony. Another fantastic observation. You deserve a prize for making such a good observation. And you can see exactly the same thing, not just in your fishing floats, but if you look up in the night sky and you find a star, and it's not a very bright star, and if you to a star that you can just about see if you look just off to the side of it you'll find it's apparently much brighter than you really thought it was and then you look back at it and it seems to go dim again exactly and the the reason for this is that the retina the part of the back of the eye which converts light waves into brain waves that is not equivalently sensitive to light across all of its surface So the retina is wired up so that you have one region of the retina, a sort of sweet spot, which is the macula, yellow spot, which has in the middle of that a structure called the fovea. And in the fovea, there are lots and lots of very, very tiny cone cells. And cones are the most accurate vision that we have. They see in colour. And they also have the smallest what's called receptive field. In other words, you see the tiniest spots of light with the cones because they're very, very small. And they they project onto nerve cells that carry individual spots of light straight back to the brain. They tell the brain exactly where individual little spots of light are. Outside of that very accurate bit of the retina is the peripheral retina. And it's mostly populated by fewer of those cones but there's about 100 million rod cells there, and the rods are much more sensitive to light. They also process vision very, very fast, so they can see things very, very quickly, and so they're very, very good to have in your peripheral vision because they're very sensitive to light, and they work very fast. Now, when it gets dark, because the cones are very, very accurate and very, very small, they need enormous amounts of light to work, and as it gets dark, there's not enough light to drive the cones as well as the rods. So you notice when it gets dark that you can't see things in colour as well and you also can't see things if you look straight at them as well because you're trying to use your cones. But outside, around the more accurate centre of your vision, on the peripheral retina where it's mainly rods and fewer cones, you can see the things because the rods are much more sensitive to light. They have a pigment called scotopsin, which needs far less light energy to actually get activated. So when you're looking at your fishing float at night, if you focus it on your fovea, the bit of the retina that you use to read a book, you can't see it as well because you're trying to use your cones, 
but when you look to the side, the light rays are coming in and falling on the part of the retina around your fovea, which has got rods in it, much more light sensitive, and you can see it better. <laughs> My God, you are a genius. How do you keep all that stuff in your head? I'm a geek. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell my daughter now because she wants to know the answer. Thank you. Well, thanks, Tony. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you. Bye. Now then, uh, Joe in Yarmouth, Chris, has um, said he's just seen an unidentified object in the sky, orangey-coloured light darting around the sky over the industrial estate in Yarmouth, looking towards the east. It's been there a couple of nights in a row, just wondering if anybody else has seen it. And in fact, over the last weekend, I think it was, there were quite a few sightings of um, UFOs that have been unexplained uh, right across the world. I don't know whether you've heard anything about that, Chris. Um, but like everyone, I'm fascinated by the idea that there, there is life beyond planet Earth. I don't believe that there cannot be. I mean, if you look up in the night sky, if you could physically count all of the stars, the current NASA estimate for the number of stars up there is something like one followed by 22 zeros, a heptillion stars. And if each of those stars has got a little clutch of planets like our own star has, even though only a fraction of those stars is equivalent to our sun and therefore likely to have the right conditions for life. The prospects of finding a planetary system or solar system like our own is so high that I do not believe that there isn't life elsewhere in the universe, which is, well, 13.7 billion years old. And I, I'm sure, therefore, that there's adequate time for uh, a similar life forms like us to evolve so i just don't believe it's not physically possible whether or not they're here visiting us now i don't know i doubt it i think if they've probably managed to get all this way and uh, can master the art of traveling all this way to visit our planet then they probably wouldn't make a silly mistake and make themselves so easy to spot because the reality is that in the same way we know that when we go somewhere pristine we usually spoil it i think probably that these other individuals would have enormous respect for other life forms and other planets and they would probably therefore keep themselves hidden certainly if they've had the chance to listen to any of our tv and radio programs they'll know full well they should definitely steer clear <laughs> Tis I, Queen Vita of Voluptua, <laughs> that, uh, that drives this show. Be careful, well, I was thinking of Strictly Come Dancing and things ah. like that. <laughs> if you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Um, Jack has sent a text in. He says, how do screens work? And by that, I believe he means um, computer screens and sc screens in general. Chris? Well, the, the old days screens, the really big heavy ones, were cathode ray tubes. And what that means is that at the back of the set is a filament, a bit like you find in an electric light bulb. And that filament is heated so it glows. And when it glows, it boils off electrons. Electrons are negative charges. And the filament is made very, very negative with respect to the screen. There's a big coil at the front of the screen, which is a big coil of windings of wire, which are put at a very high voltage. And because electrons are attracted to a plus charge, if you put them in that electric field, then the electrons which boil off from this glowing filament at the back of the screen get accelerated at very high speed towards the screen. They go straight past this positively charged meshwork and they slam into the glass and the inside back surface of the glass on a TV screen 
is coated with a substance known as a phosphor. Not because it contains phosphorus, nothing to do with the element. It's called a phosphor because it can glow when you give it some energy. And so what you do is you have this layer on the surface of the screen and you use various layers um, which have different chemicals in them in order to get different colours. But you basically slam your electrons at very high speed into that layer. The electrons give their energy to the molecules in the phosphor and that makes some of the ions or elements in the phosphor get excited and they then re-release the energy from the electron as visible light which then comes out through the glass and you can see it and then by basically exciting the phosphor in, in a certain way and scanning across the screen you can build up a picture which is how TVs work. That's the old style of TVs. The newer ones, things like LCD, liquid crystal display, they're a bit cleverer. Um, the way they work is that you have a very strong light behind uh, a layer of liquid crystal. Liquid crystal is a molecule which can change its polarisation, its orientation, in response to an electric field. So what your screen does there is for every little pixel you have a little li bit of liquid crystal and you turn on a voltage or turn off a voltage and this makes the molecule flip or change its shape. And when it changes shape it does or doesn't let light go through. And so what they are able to do is to allow light of with, with polarised light to go through or get blocked. And that's how you, you make up a liquid crystal display. And by using different molecules, which allow different wavelengths of polarised light of different colours through, you can, you can also do it with colour. And so that's basically how the newer generations of screens work. They're much better than the cathode ray tubes because they're lighter, more compact, you can make them much more energy efficient, and therefore they're better for things like computers and mobile devices. Brilliant. Thanks, Chris. Um, going back to goosebumps, says Mark the Storman, how do animals evolve the instinct to raise the hair to make themselves bigger? What makes nature program animals to do it? I can understand why species die as different weather changes, but can't get my head around the goosebump bit. Um, Chris? Well, the answer is it comes down to evolution. So if you've got an animal that, by sheer chance, raises its fur in order to keep cold, but then at the same time happens to do that when it gets scared and looks really big and scares off a predator. As a result, it's more likely to survive, it's more likely to breed, and whatever genes made that behaviour happen then get passed into other animals, and as a result, the population of those animals that happen to make themselves bigger when they get scared and cold, uh, they, they become very successful, and so they take over, and that trait gets inherited. And that's how we think these behaviours, which are hardwired, evolve. It's basically sheer chance, which throws up one of these possibilities. It gets tested against the environment. If it's beneficial, then it will give that individual, whichever animal or whatever it is that has that trait, an advantage over other animals, and it will therefore have more babies, and those babies will all have the trait, and very soon that will become the dominant species, or the, the dominant trait in that species, and so on. So basically it's just down to good old evolution. All right, well, let's go to the phones again now. We've got Dave on the line from Luton. Hello, Dave. Hello. You're through to Dr Chris. What's your question? Hi. Um, well, sitting there, I've thought of another one, but can I ask two questions? If they're quick. Well, if you're good to us, we might let you. <laughs> OK. Now, the first one, um, mitochondria. They talk about maternal mitochondria. Now, I've been... In told that um, mitochondria don't travel over from the male in conception. Now, all babies come from women, so how can there be anything but maternal mitochondria? Hello, Dave. Let's do a little bit of background here so people know what we're talking about. Mitochondria are these tiny structures. They're the same size as bacteria that live 
inside our cells and they make energy for us. And the reason I reference bacteria is that there was a lady called Lynn Margulis who has suggested an endosymbiont theory that back in history bacterial cells got together with cells that were going to become our cells and plant cells and so on and the two got together and our cells said to the bacteria we'll give you food and will give you protection and in return you use your very clever metabolism and make energy for us and the two got together it was a match made in heaven it's been going on for three billion years ever since that's what we think is the story behind mitochondria so we have these tiny independent structures inside our cells that feed our cells all the energy that they can need so that means that when a baby is being conceived babies come from eggs and sperm eggs are big cells so they're made by the mother and they're fertilised by sperm, which are very, very small cells. And when a sperm fertilises an egg, basically the sperm just penetrates the shell, the outer coat, the zona pellucida of the egg, and adds its genetic material alongside the genetic material that's already in the egg. The mitochondria that are involved are therefore mainly the ones that are in the egg from the mother. There might be a few mitochondria from the sperm that go across, but they will be grossly outnumbered by the ones from the mother. And therefore we tend to talk about mitochondria as maternally inherited because basically you get your eggs from your mother, the mitochondria come from that egg, and therefore all the mitochondria in your body, whether you're a man or a woman, must come from your mother pretty much. And therefore um, we can trace back human origins by looking for what's called mitochondrial Eve. The idea being that at some point in history there was one woman whose mitochondria have basically gone into all of us sometime back in history. And that person we think was an African and probably lived probably about six million years ago. Okay. The other question though was, um, you were talking about the cones in the eyes. Yeah. I've, I've wondered for some time, different wavelengths, high frequency, the um, blue end of the spectrum, and the red red end of the spectrum, are the cones actually side sized so that the wavelength hits them at different heights? Is that how the body possibly um, recognises it? Actually, the the cones in your eye, you have about five million uh, cone cells, and the cone cells fall into three different flavours. There are ones that are preferentially detecting long wavelengths, there are ones which preferentially detect medium wavelengths of light and ones which detect short wavelengths of light. And the way they discriminate is not by the size or shape of the cone so much because in the fovea, the part of the eye that's really, really sensitive that we were talking about earlier, the cones there are mini cones. They're minuscule versions of the bigger ones that you find elsewhere on the eye. The reason being that the smaller they are, the more of them you can pack in and therefore the more you can resolve spots of light and therefore the higher the acuity, the more detail you can see. But the way in which they discriminate the light that's hitting them is that they have pigments in them. These are basically molecules which are called opsins and these molecules are preferentially sensitive to light of different wavelengths. And so you have opsins that respond to long wavelengths, you have opsins that respond to medium wavelengths, and you have opsins that respond to long wavelengths and so on. And when light of a certain wavelength hits that opsin, what it does is it makes the molecule dissociate or it changes shape, and this causes it to spit out um, another structure, which then signals the cell that it's been hit by some light and it then sends a, a nerve signal into the brain to say hey I just picked up some light and then the molecule flicks back to its original shape so it's not the, sh the shape of the cell it's actually the molecule of opsin that it has which gives it its ability to discriminate different wavelengths of light so 
So it sends out different molecules, different types of molecules. Yeah, so this, basically the cells, um, it's a bit like if you had a photo detector, a machine to pick up light, yeah. then you would have one photo detector that only responded to red light, one that responded to green and one that responded to blue, for example. And if you shone red light on the blue receptor, it, it basically can't respond, it can't see it. And so the co that's how the cones work out basically what colour you're seeing because they look at the relative um, response of each of the different cone species to the light coming in. So if you make, say, orange light, you can make orange light by mixing a bit of red and a bit of yellow. Yeah. So if you have orange light coming into your eye, it could activate the red cones a bit, it will activate the yellow cones a bit, so the eye says, aha, if both of those are being turned on a bit, that must be orange. I'll give you something in the middle. Exactly. Dave, thank you very much. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mike in Colchester says, um, have we reached the limits of our boundaries with pushing ourselves in sports? For example, Usian Bolt's amazing time for 100 metres, etc. Well, yeah. I mean, Usain Bolt managed to take enormous amounts of time off the 100 metres and then did it again when he ran again this year. And people think, well, surely we must be at the limit of human physiological adaptation. And the chances are that, to a certain extent, that's true. But then there are other things that we can do to boost performance. So, for instance, at Cranfield University, not far away from us here in the eastern region, um, there's a lot of good research which is going on uh, into how you can build better footwear so that athletes don't waste energy. So, for instance, if you adjust or, or configure the sole of a shoe better, then you can get the right sorts of angles across your joints so that the energy that is being transduced or burned up in muscles, more of it turns into appropriate mechanical locomotive force instead of just being turned into heat. So I think that, yes, there's a, to a certain extent, probably we've now got to the point where with really good training regimes, we understand how the body works with really good food, we're probably getting to the point where we're not going to see much more improvement. We're certainly not going to improve genetically that fast but the other things that we can do to help us speed up with better training and better equipment better footwear better clothes in general better equipment basically that will add uh, and make a difference to our performance on the track and so we probably will continue to see a bit of improvement but certainly the changes are going to be going to be slower than they have been historically um, but but I think we're not quite there yet Mm. All right, one on the email here from uh, Karen and Edward in Essex. They say, um, could we ask about salt, please? While laying lines of salt out to keep slugs away from my plants, my son asked the following. Because we're made up from a high percentage of water, if we covered a human being in salt, would the same happen to him or her as happens to a slug? Maybe it's a bit gruesome, but we'd like to know, please. Karen and Edward <laughs> in Essex. <laughs> what are they planning? Uh, the answer is probably... Uh, the point is that human skin is a very good barrier. It's a physical barrier between us and the outside world and it is capable of keeping the inside in and the outside out but it's not a perfect barrier. It is a little bit leaky and if you put yourself in a very strong solution of something, say if you were to uh, put your skin in alcohol, for example, which is very dehydrating, or a layer of salt, which is very, very dry, it would draw water out of your body through the skin. And as a result, unless you replace that water into the body, you would progressively turn into a prune and you would dry out. Um, so it's not a good idea to do that. But uh, the answer is you would almost certainly slowly dehydrate yourself because the body is continuously producing water through the skin. We squirt something like two litres of sweat into our shoes every day. 
uh, and that's why they stink if you wear nasty trainers and don't have nice leather breathable footwear um, because of all that water so you get a sort of bacterial banquet going on between your toes you've got dead cells you've got water you've got warmth and it's a, it's the perfect ingredients for having a bacterial feast and that's what makes them whiff Anybody just about to have a little snack? <laughs> There's cheese that graphic detail. On toast. Yeah. <laughs> um, one very last quick one. Um, Fiona in Spalding says, uh, "Why do we alter the clocks in the at the end of British summertime? They didn't during World War Two. Well, this was something that got introduced. It was it, the idea first came up about three hundred years ago or so. Actually, um, I forget the name of the man who um, first proposed it and was rubbished. And then eventually, it did get introduced. Uh, the argument being that this would make um, better use of the available daylight. Um, the point is that because of the fact that the Earth isn't pointing straight upwards, downwards in space, it's on a tilt, 23.5 degrees, we have seasons. And as the Earth goes around the sun, uh, in our winter season, the northern hemisphere is tilted away from the sun. And at th th that particular attitude, it means that there's less light falling on the Earth for less time. Therefore, it's colder. That's why we have winter. But also, the day length is going to be dramatically impacted. And if we want to actually make the most use of our days, then having this daylight saving approach is supposed to make more useful hours of the day available to more people. And the effect of deprivation from sunlight is really quite dramatic. If you look at the suicide rates in places like Scotland and Scandinavia, where they have very long, dark, drawn-out winters, that, that speaks for itself. And so the idea is to try and get people at work when there's a bit more light around and make their day a bit nicer for them. They obviously don't work in my hospital. Just joking. Mm. Uh, anyway, that's the answer. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 